You're about to hear my conversation with Hussein Sunderji. Hussein is the lead portfolio manager on the Ivy International Fund, and we talk all about where he finds opportunities in Asia, in Europe, some things to consider before investing in both Japan and China. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with Hussein Sunderji. Hussein is the lead portfolio manager on the Ivy International Fund. Hussein, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, really looking forward to this conversation. As you probably know, I had an opportunity to sit down with Matt Moody uh, not too long ago and really dive into the Ivy investment philosophy. What I thought I'd spend a little bit of time with you on is how you apply that philosophy in international markets and specifically Asia. I think when I think about the Ivy investment process and style, uh, what comes to mind is high quality companies, great downside protection that doesn't necessarily jive with Asia to me. So I'd love to get your perspective on the universe that you're investing in in Asia. We can touch on Europe later on, but let's let's start with Asia. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great place to start, Matt. And I agree there are some there definitely are some nuances with how we apply the IV investment philosophy and the style to Asia. But at the at the core, it's the same principles that we use in other regions of the world, which is, as you said, we're looking for high quality companies. And what does quality really mean from a company perspective? To us, it means a company with a great and very strong competitive advantage, um, a company that has a great corporate culture in that it, it reinvests in its competitive advantage and seeks to grow it, a company that is run by a good management team and that allocates capital very well and um, has a really strong balance sheet and, and the resources to continue to invest in its business for the long term. So that's really what we're looking for. And then to your point, how are we applying that in Asia? And, you know, I'll start with a region like Japan. And as, as you and I discussed before, I started covering Asia, uh, dedicated coverage of Asia back in 2014, in the middle of 2014. Right. And really, I was, as I went through the universe and tried and started to get a handle on the nature of the companies and how they're different from North America, I was pleasantly surprised with the number of high quality businesses uh, I could find, for example, in a region like Japan. And what immediately jumped out is there's a lot of um, world-class global businesses, multinational businesses that are that are located in Japan, listed in Japan, that obviously operate globally. And many of these companies had really strong balance sheets. So if you put them up against some of their U.S. competitors, actually these Japanese companies in some cases had significant amounts of net cash, which you wouldn't necessarily see that from some US and even some European companies. I think one of the reasons for that is because even going back to the late 80s and early 90s, the, the bursting of the bubble in Japan. And right. at that time, many companies were caught offside on their balance sheets and it went through a really tough situation. And it took them many, many years to, de to delever the balance sheet. And they're in a position where they don't want to get back there ever again. So a lot of corporate balance sheets in Japan are actually quite good. and. You know, when we looked deeper at some of these companies, one, one of the things that I noticed was that they actually spoke, um, even reading the annual report, in a very holistic fashion in the sense that they take all stakeholders into consideration 
as they run their business. And so, yes, shareholders, definitely, but um, broader society. So, for example, they, they, they talk about taking care of their employees and making contributions to society. And these were things, obviously, they've come much more to the forefront in the last few years, uh, along with ESG. But these are things that Japanese companies were talking about many years ago. So um, that's another aspect of quality for us. So again, if you look at, you know, global multinational business treats its stake, all of its stakeholders well, there are many companies that have great competitive advantages and they've, and they've reinvested in their competitive advantages, sometimes to the detriment of margins. And um, so, you know, really it's a lot of the same tenants that we apply elsewhere. We apply to Asia. One of the things that we do have to make a bit of, um, leeway on is on the corporate governance side and in the sense that we look at it more in a relative sense than in an absolute sense so for the most part asian companies when you look at their boards for example you will see that the level of independence on their boards uh, is not what it is in north america or europe or even australia and so in some cases we would have to rely on the historical track record of that company and make an assessment as to look are we comfortable with a low level of uh, independence on their board, if it means that we think you know it's actually being run by a good management team and can deliver good long-term returns for the business and for shareholders, so these are some of the these are some of the key differences that we take into account. That's great, and I appreciate you starting uh, with Japan. We can go sort of country by country and and look at uh, maybe different stereotypes, and you can probably help me bust uh, some of those stereotypes. Sure. So uh, Japan, I think it's it's quite. Um, reasonable to think uh, in the Ivy style. Obviously, there's some very well-known large uh, companies. Uh, corporate culture uh, seems to be like entirely ingrained uh, in, in Japan. I think Toyota is probably the best example that comes uh, top of mind. Um, you did reference cash uh, on the balance sheet as well as corporate governance. Just to follow up on sort of cash on the balance sheet, when does that become problematic to you? Like when is too much? When is there too much cash or too much conservatism, or is it always a? Uh, do you always appreciate the flexibility? You know, we we definitely always appreciate the flexibility, but it depends on the type of business. So it's a if it's a very cyclical business. So for example, in the Ivy International Fund and even in the Ivy Foreign Equity Fund, uh, we've we're currently invested or have historically invested in some good high quality industrial businesses that are that are listed and domiciled in Japan but that are very cyclical. For these types of businesses, we would actually prefer that they hold high levels of net cash because as you can see, you know, when you look back through their corporate histories, there have been periods where they've gone through, uh, where the businesses have been very weak. And so you never know when that's gonna happen again, but if it does, we wanna make sure that they have the resources they need to be able to get through it and potentially come out stronger on the other side where it becomes a problem at times is when there's a risk that the company may uh, engage in value destroying activities with that cash. So making a large acquisition, paying right. too much for a company, um, you know, never really earning the cost of capital or return above the cost of capital on, a, on an right. acquisition like that. And in that case, like it would have made much more sense for the company to return that cash to shareholders. So I think that's where it becomes a little problematic. And at times, as we're seeing now, actually, what we're seeing more of now is with uh, with uh, activism. You know, activist investors, sure. they, there's many methods they can take, but one of the easiest ones is to target companies that, that have uh, an undercapitalized or an underutilized balance sheet and, right. and try to get them to return more of that cash to shareholders, which 
it's not always a bad thing, but sometimes it may not, it may not make the most sense. Right. Um, and, and those problems don't strike me as particularly unique to Japan as, as you were looking through them, but, but apply around the world. You touched on corporate governance uh, improving somewhat in Japan. Uh, it's always it's long been um, a uh, challenge of Japan or a, a characteristic of Japan where you have cross country uh, company holdings uh, with uh, certain large companies holding other companies stocks on the balance sheet. Do you still come across that or has that uh, been improving over time? It's definitely improved over time. You still see it but it's improved significantly. I, I would say where it's uh, more of an issue these days is in Korea, where they mm-hmm. haven't, they haven't, I mean, they've improved a little bit, but but still we haven't seen the same level of improvement there as we have in Japan. In Japan, it's been a multi-year process of eliminating some of these cross shareholdings. So it, uh, no, it's, it's, certainly become, it's certainly become better. And Japanese companies overall have become more proactive in terms of returning cash to shareholders mm-hmm. where it makes sense and that's through buybacks through dividends and they have the they have the capacity to do so and so we're definitely seeing a lot more of that and companies just being smarter with how they allocate capital in Japan relative to many many years ago right well maybe we'll leave Japan on that and and turn our attention to probably uh, the elephant in the room which is China um, clearly uh, the dominant market force in Asia um, a truly dynamic uh, capitalist um, um, uh, stock market and, and the capitalist activity, obviously a communist country. I'd love your, your perspective on China um, and what you see both from the business perspective as well as how you think about uh, the, the overall um, uh, landscape of the Chinese stock market. Yeah, so yeah, a couple of good questions in there. I would say at first, the way we achieve our exposure to China the vast majority of it in our funds is indirect. So we invest obviously in a number of global multinational businesses, many of which have exposure to China. And for some of them, it's actually quite meaningful. And you do see that again, going back to Japan, for a lot of, there's a number of Japanese industrial companies or even consumer companies where their exposure to China and their reliance on China is much more than what you would see out of the equivalent company in the US. But again, the vast majority of our exposure is indirect and not to get too much into the details, but when we assess these companies, one of the things we do is really try to think hard about the growth prospects and the sustainability of their business and the economics that they achieve in China. So many years ago, we came across a number of companies where their their Chinese businesses were growing uh, the margins for their Chinese businesses were higher than their other businesses globally. And we had to ask ourselves, is that really sustainable? In some of these cases, what we found is, A, the growth has slowed down significantly for their businesses in China as the economy has slowed. And B, the market has become, I would say the business environment has become a lot more competitive in China, where you see a lot of domestic companies um, doing a lot better than they were historically in various segments. And what that means for multinational businesses is, uh, their margins in China are have been falling. And right. so that is something that where we have to exercise a lot of care when we assess businesses in China. In terms of the broader economy, again, as you know, our style, as a function of our style, we're a little bit more, we try to be a little bit more realistic and, and at times conservative when we project because we're trying to think about a business, you know, not one to two years out, but 10 years out. And right. so we've always, we've always, 
I would say, been a bit skeptical about the growth potential of China when when the broader you know when the broader investor base was talking about eight nine percent growth well out into the future. Sure. We felt much more comfortable, you know, plugging in a, a 5% growth estimate well out into the future. Now it could potentially be lower. So I would say we're, we're more conservative when it comes to projecting long-term growth in China, but still realizing that a lot of the companies that we own and look at still rely, like even that lower growth estimate in China is better than what you would get in many other parts of the world. Of course. You know, so, uh, so these are some of the things we have to realize. In terms of the Chinese stock market, again, as I said, the vast majority of our exposure is indirect. We have held in the past select and even currently select um, China domiciled businesses that are listed in Hong Kong or that were listed elsewhere. And again, with these, our approach is just to be a little bit extra careful. So number one, we have to make sure it's a high quality business based on, based on all the work we can do. And number two, we would really try to risk manage those positions in the portfolio, and that's mainly through weightings and then looking at correlations with other mm-hmm. with other businesses, whether whether they're Hong Kong listed businesses or or what have you. So that's been our approach. And you know, as of today, I wouldn't expect the IV funds to become significantly more active in terms of us owning domestic Chinese businesses. Uh, however, it's something that we constantly look at. And if we see signs that there are, again, good businesses out there, and we have seen several that are trading at a tra- very attractive valuations where we think we can risk manage in the portfolio, um, we would we will look hard at those at those opportunities. And, and the narrowness of the universe in China that seems like Ivy would be interested in, is that a function of just not enough businesses that are very high quality? Or is it uh, also, uh, the geography that they deal in, the regulatory environment, the unpredictable nature of, uh, of some of the government interventions that we've witnessed over the past several years. Like how has all of that um, uh, come together in your decision? Yeah, I think it's actually all of the above. So the first thing, as you know, given the size of our mandates and the nature of our mandate, liquidity is a major, uh, is a major issue for us. So we need to make sure we have the liquidity, the required liquidity in order to be able to look at a particular company. But then once you get into that space of larger companies in China, it's exactly what you said. It, you know, what, what's their geographic exposure? If it's 100% China, you know that's something that we'll be, we'll be a lot more cautious about. Uh, is it the governance? Is it the historical track record on capital allocation? Or is it the potential for government interve- intervention? You know, There's been a lot of news in the last year and a half about the Chinese education companies Sure. Which were at one point viewed as as high quality businesses. You know, they were growing. They had, they had, uh, they were run by by capable management teams. And then, you know, seemingly out of the blue, uh, came this directive from the Chinese government uh, to effectively make them not for profit. And now looking back, there were potentially signs of that, but it's very sure. hard to know. So, so yeah, I think it's I think it's all of the things that you said and and importantly risk managing that within the portfolio and just being very very selective excellent maybe we'll we'll uh leave china and i'd I'd love your comments before uh turning to europe uh on the sort of the rest of asia um are there any other uh geographical areas in asia that is that you're finding high quality businesses and reliable governance and and uh country oversight uh that that seem like viable options well, we own we own a business. We own TSMC in our funds. It's you know it's public information and it's a very well known 
global business. And so that's, that's based in Taiwan. And we think that's a fabulous business and the management is extremely good. They've got great corporate governance and a fantastic corporate culture. It's one of the best corporate cultures we've seen globally. And, uh, and yes, there is, there is obviously some political issues at the moment related to China and, and, you know, with the U S but, but overall, they've you know that's been a, like they've done a tremendous job as a company and as a government of allowing the company to flourish. So that's one example. And there are you know even in Korea, we do see some high quality businesses in Korea. We own one across uh, several of the portfolios, and there you have to you have to you know weigh the the positives against the negatives. So on the positive side, even if you look at the business that we own. Um, there's a great growth opportunity. They have a great competitive position globally, but on the negative side, there are issues related to corporate governance. It's not as strong as what right. you would see from, say, their North American or European peers. So we have to take that into consideration when assigning a quality rating to the company and then assigning, assigning a weighting for that stock in the portfolio. Great. Uh, so risk mitigation, largely uh, when, you, when you take positions in areas where uh, maybe the company would deserve a higher uh, amount of, of your weighting, you, you, you layer on sort of where they are operating and, and this corporate governance piece and, and, and the overall uh, allocation to it would be reduced uh, to manage risk. Is that is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And as you've probably heard, you know, talking to the other Ivy team members, one of the things we strive for when we select companies is a narrow dispersion of growth outcomes. Right. And and that's that's very important. And so that's how that, uh, you know, our assessment of the companies ties into that and then the resulting quality rating and weight. Perfect. Um, well, narrow dispersion of growth outcomes is a great transition segment, because as we go to Europe, I think uh, the the stereotypical European com- company has a narrow dispersion of growth outcomes. They just happen to be very low. Um, so. I'd love your your uh, view on, on Europe. Um, uh, obviously, uh, a little bit more timely than the discussion that we just uh, left on Asia, uh, given the Russian-Ukraine uh, situation and, and war there. Uh, what's your current view on, on Europe? Are you seeing um, uh, attractive uh, companies and valuations there? Yeah. So as you know, Matt, our approach to Europe, in some ways, it's similar to Asia in the sense that Oftentimes, we target global multinational businesses that just happen to be domiciled and listed in Europe. And in, and in many cases, there is, a, there is a bit of a difference from a corporate culture perspective. Right. But these are largely the types of companies that we own. And so in that case, you know, the impact that they would face from a, a slowing European economy would be similar to many of their, say, North American listed peers who also right. operate in Europe. So that's, you know, so we don't think that's necessarily something that is unique to those companies. And in some cases, you know, you see an instance of the baby getting thrown out with the bathwater because you have companies like this and the market will sell sell down their stock just because they're listed in Europe. So there are some opportunities like that out there, some of which we own. And outside of that, I think our approach to, to owning businesses in Europe, again, high quality businesses with great competitive advantages run by great management teams. And um, it's, it's very similar to, to what we would expect uh, elsewhere. We, you know, just in referencing Europe and a weak economic environment, as is the case with all of our stocks, we try to own businesses that we think can, can, um, can do relatively well 
even in a weak economic environment. Not necessarily, like it's not the case that the business won't fall. I said relatively well, so they can sure. actually uh, make it through a, a tough economic environment and and even in some cases be stronger on the other side. So, um, so we look for companies that have navigated these types of environments before and that are set up well to succeed on the other side of these types of environments. And so that's what we hope we have with several of our European holdings um, you know, at this particular time with the, with a tough European economy. And when you, when you look at Europe as a continent, um, obviously it's a very diverse continent with uh, a lot of different uh, nations, different rules, different fundamentals uh, behind the rules. Do you um, use a similar sort of weighting mechanism as you go from country to country that you'd see in Asia? Or, or can you think of, I guess, specifically Western Europe as being monolithically uh, pretty good on corporate culture, governance, uh, and, and, and government uh, oversight? Uh, or, or do you apply that same sort of analysis that you're applying on, on sort of Asia to, to Europe as well? I would say it's similar to what we do in Asia in the sense that, you know, this is all done on a bottom-up basis. So it, it's, it's on a company-by-company company, uh, basis. So if we come across a company in Europe that we generally like that has a great competitive advantage, but that has some, you know, some drawbacks related to the corporate culture, sorry, to the corporate governance, then we would make that, we'd potentially assign a lower quality rating to that stock, similar to what we do for an Asian stock. And then it would have a lower weighting in the portfolio, similar to an Asian stock. But I would say generally, there are fewer of those companies that we come across right. when we look at European companies compared to Asian companies. Great. That's great. Um well, and any comments on uh, on the war with Russia Ukraine? What uh, what opportunities that has left with you? Reference the baby being thrown out with the bathwater. Are you seeing a lot more opportunities in Europe than you are in other uh, geographies right now? I would say we are seeing potentially more opportunities in Europe. Uh, I wouldn't categorically say that they're all at the very high end of the quality spectrum. You know, okay. those and those that's natural. I think those are tougher to come by you know, even in a broader market sell-off. But but I would say on the whole, there are more opportunities that we are seeing in Europe relative to to other parts of the world. And in terms of the, you know, our view of the Russia-Ukraine crisis and what our other opportunities may be coming up as a result, of, obviously it's very difficult to predict. And sure. as I said, we try to make sure we own companies that can um, that can sustain themselves through any type of economic or external environment. Although this one is quite unique, but even in this particular environment, we would have we would have you know gone through all of our companies and and done an assessment on the risk um, or the risk that they potentially face if this type of environment persists. What I would say, as you probably know, Matt, we've across most of the IV funds, we do have a relatively high weighting in the consumer staples sector, right. and if you historically that's been a great sector for us because it gives us. Um, uh, good defensiveness. And it also, you know, we think we can find some good high quality companies in that sector. Some of them don't grow very much, but but they're quite, you know, the businesses are quite stable and they're high quality. What happened when the Russia-Ukraine crisis initially broke out was several consumer staple stocks uh, sold off because the market believed that their earnings would be at risk because of rising input prices. Okay. That actually did happen in some cases. These companies felt the squeeze on their earnings uh, earlier, potentially more so than others, because it takes time. There's usually a time lag um, with which companies, some of these companies can raise prices. Uh, 
Right. But what may be happening now is, you know, several commodities have rolled over over the last few months, just as some of these consumer staple stocks, as consumer staple businesses have increased their prices. Right. And so there could be actually a near-term tailwind uh, for some of these companies, uh, assuming, assuming you know, the, the demand environment doesn't completely collapse. But with input costs potentially easing and in some cases rolling off and price increases now having taken hold and, and being somewhat sticky, at least in the medium term, that could provide a short-term tailwind for some of these companies. Hassan, maybe we'll call it right there on a fairly optimistic note and, and tailwinds uh, for the international marketplace. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 